0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode number eight of The Joe Pomp Show. I'm Joe Pompliano, and today's conversation is with my brother, Anthony Pompliano, a technology investor and entrepreneur. Given the worlds of crypto and sports are colliding today more than ever, Anthony and I sat down to talk about it all, including why athletes like Saquon Barkley, Odell Beckham Jr., and Aaron Rodgers are all being paid in Bitcoin, the companies spending billions of dollars on sports partnerships, the future of NFTs, and more. This was an awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach. Monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback with Whoop. Train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all-new Whoop 4.0, the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. The all-new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. The device also features an all-new smart alarm, designed to wake you up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. Plus, it was designed with their new Anywhere technology, so you can wear it with their new Whoop Body Sensor Enhanced Technical Garments, boxers, shorts, compression tops, leggings, and more. Just remove the band from the device, and slide it into your garment of choice, and you're discreetly tracking your daily activity with Whoop. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now, and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. Not only is the device comfortable to wear, the app packs a ton of health information into a simple display that's easy to understand. Get the all-new waterproof device for free when you sign up for Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months left on your membership, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering 15% off when you use code Joe at checkout. Go to whoop, dot and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Next up is Public Rec. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling all-day everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with thousands of others, are wearing these. And trust me, they live up to the height. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they are definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30 plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live 24-7 US-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code Joe. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coincloud Joe. That's coincloud Joe. And don't forget to use promo code Joe for free Bitcoin. All right. I am pumped to have my brother, Anthony, here today. Am I your best guest? To be determined. We'll see how the conversation goes. (laughs) Thank you for doing this. Not that you had a choice necessarily, but I appreciate you sitting down. No, no problem. All right. What do you want to talk about? Dude, this is your show. You invite <laughs> me here. Don't don't be asking me for the agenda. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm excited to do this because I think a lot of people uh, have a lot of questions about crypto and sports. It's obviously been a category that has gained a ton of traction over the last 12 to 24 months. Sponsorship dollars are rolling in. Athletes are being paid in crypto. There's a whole new sector being born with NFTs. Uh, and you have a lot of knowledge on this. So let's start with athletes being paid in crypto. And specifically Bitcoin, right? So I have a list of a few people here. Russell Okung announced last year he was taking 50% of his $13 million salary with the Carolina Panthers in Bitcoin. So $6.5 million a year, he said. Uh, Saquon announced earlier this year that he was going to be taking 100% of his $10 million plus annual sponsorship money in Bitcoin, Uh, Sean Culkin, who's a practice squad player said he was going to be taking hundred percent in Bitcoin. And then there's other guys recently, Aaron Rodgers and Odell Beckham each announced that they would be taking either a portion or in Odell's case, 100% of his salary in Bitcoin. That's kind of the pay me in Bitcoin crowd. And then there's a crowd that, uh, has taken some amount of their compensation in deals in crypto, Tom Brady, Stephen Curry, Shohei Atani, and others, uh, as well as some equity in FTX and other exchanges. So Why do you think, uh, let's start with being paid in Bitcoin. Why do you think athletes are doing this now? I think there's three reasons. One is they were going to buy Bitcoin with some portion of their salary already. So this
1: is an easy way for them using something like Strike. Um, to basically get the Bitcoin without having to pay the exchange fees. Um, so there's just like an economic uh, savings that occurs. The second thing is, uh, there's definitely like some branding opportunities here. So in some cases, they're being paid by a platform uh, to to take some of their salary in Bitcoin, or what they're doing is they're trying to position themselves to be seen as a, a investor, uh, a technology um, kind of focused individual um, that can lead to other you know, branding deals, sponsorship deals, et cetera. Uh, And then the third thing I think uh, is that there is some people just literally running from trying to hold dollars, right? They they see that, Hey, look, I get paid a lot of money in some cases, millions or tens of millions of dollars a year. And so I need to be able to protect my purchasing power. And it's one thing if you get paid, you know, $50,000 and there's 6% inflation, it's a whole nother thing. If all of a sudden you get $20 million a year right? You're just literally watching that, um, get, uh, kind of eroded away. And so whether it's because they want to save exchange fees, whether it's because, uh, they see it as like a branding and and sponsorship opportunity, or it's because they actually are worried from a more macroeconomic standpoint, uh, there's a whole bunch of people who are just arriving at the idea of like, I should get paid in this asset and I should hold this asset on my personal balance sheet.
0: Yeah. So I, I think that's a good point, but uh, one point I think people get sort of confused on, right. is like If you look at the NFL specifically, uh, the players that have done it in the NFL, the the collective bargaining agreement, the CBA, between the league and its players, it's negotiated, does not allow people to be paid in Bitcoin. Correct. Right? So I think a lot of people say, are they technically being, being paid in Bitcoin, are they not, et cetera. And I don't know if that's necessarily a point of contention, if it's even worth arguing. But structurally, how do these payments work? Let's use... Russ, as an example, who partnered with Strike. Cause yeah, I know so Strike,
1: and, uh, I'm an investor in Strike, and, and what ultimately their technology allows you to do is use the Lightning Network to send uh, dollars across the Lightning Network. Uh, you can also just obviously send Bitcoin across Lightning network as well. Um, and so Bitcoin's simple, you basically send Bitcoin across Lightning network, uh, which is a second layer on top of, uh, Bitcoin's kind of core, uh, system, right? If you think of Bitcoin as layer one, super secure, uh, but not necessarily the fastest or the cheapest, but definitely the most secure, the most decentralized layer two is where there's much more scalability. You can have instantaneous payments, uh, with cash finality to them, uh, very, very low fees, if not zero fees. Um, and you can send it anyone in the world that's on the lightning network. And so what strike has figured out is everyone knows how to use Bitcoin lightning network, but what about dollars? And ultimately what they're doing is let's say, I want to send you dollars on the lightning network. I have my account. I say, you know, send Joe $10. I have my account debited for, uh, $10 and you receive on the other end, either dollars or Bitcoin, depending on what you want. So your account is credited worth of either dollars or or Bitcoin. What Strike is doing is they're actually executing a Bitcoin buy purchase on one side. They're taking that Bitcoin uh, risk on their balance sheet. They've got a bunch of hedging engines, et cetera, to, to allow them to do that. And then they go ahead and they deliver it to you on the other side. And so they're using Bitcoin, the payment rails, more so than using Bitcoin, the asset. Now, why is that important for the athletes? Well, what happens is, uh, whether it's Russ Okong, whether it's, um, you know, uh, Saquon Barkley uh, or or any of these other folks who are using this technology is they simply just tell somebody, hey, I want to be paid in Bitcoin. Right on their team, but their team, not their professional team, like their personal team, whether it's their manager, their financial advisor, whoever. That financial advisor goes to somebody like Strike and says, Hey, we want to get paid in Bitcoin. Strike has a feature what you at home can use, or a professional athlete called pay me in Bitcoin. And what you get is you get brand new direct deposit information. And so they just turn around, they take that direct deposit information and they say to let's say the New York Giants or to a sponsor, they say, Hey, uh, can you please direct deposit not to the original account that you have? Instead, can you use these new banking details? They don't know why you want to do it, but they say, yeah, sure, no problem. We'll we'll just direct deposit to this new account. When they direct deposit, that account strike is actually taking the dollars that's deposited there and they're using their technology to then pay you in Bitcoin. And what you essentially are doing is you're telling them, hey, when you get a direct deposit into this fiat bank account, here is the uh, wallet address that I'd like you to send the Bitcoin to. That could be cold storage, could be on an exchange, could be all kinds of different places. So ultimately that's where, you know, people are like, oh, you're not really getting paid in Bitcoin because you didn't convince the team to get paid in Bitcoin. Sure, like you can make that argument, but I think what's more important is the people who are receiving it are they receiving dollars or are they receiving Bitcoin? What is their intention? They want to be paid in Bitcoin. And so this is a way to get paid in Bitcoin without having to go and convince the NFL to change a rule that's been in place for decades. Instead, now you can say, look, I get paid in Bitcoin. And oh, by the way, you as the team, there's no uh, kind of obstacle that you need to to jump over to make this happen. And if you want to pay me in dollars and I want to get paid in Bitcoin and we both can have that satisfied via this technology, then it's a win-win for both of us. Let's go do it.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the other ways to to think about it is, This ends up being a relatively small portion for a lot of these guys, right? There's obviously a difference between Sean Culkin, who says, I'm going to take 100% of my practice squad salary. That's whatever, call it 500K to a million dollars a year in the NFL. And I'm going to put it all in Bitcoin. That's a material part of his financial picture and his net worth. But then when it comes to someone like Odell Beckham Jr., who uh, is going to end up being paid with incentives, maybe a million or $2 million this year from the Rams, and says, I'm going to take 100% of that. He's going to make hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So what portion of this do you believe for some of these guys is just, hey, look, I'm going to have a portfolio, hopefully at the end of the day, that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, if not a billion. Plus, and this is going to represent an allocation to digital assets, whether it's Bitcoin or something else. Versus, I'm going all in, and I want to be paid all of my salary, all of my endorsements, and this stuff.
1: I don't know if I know of an athlete um, that has uh, gone all in and like denominates their entire life in Bitcoin. Um, I do know that uh, probably Russ O'Kong or Saquon uh, Barkley are the two that uh, seem to best understand it and have put a material portion of their net worth, uh, into Bitcoin. But I've got to imagine, you know, take Russ, for example, uh, I would be shocked if he had more than 50% of his net worth or his liquid portfolio in Bitcoin. It's a big percentage, probably double digit percentage, but I doubt that it's over 50%. Some of it's just because they have a big portfolio. Some of it's because uh, they, they get into kind of a risk management game, right? Uh, and the other thing you have to remember with athletes is a lot of them don't know how long they'll play. They don't know how long they'll get that paycheck for. And so you can't just kind of go, you know, put it all on black, right? And I use that as uh, kind of the most extreme view some people have of uh, of putting a big portion of your net worth in Bitcoin. is gambling. Or... You also can't go and do it, even though you think it's the most conservative thing in the world, right? Because again, at any point you get a, a, a career ending injury or, or something like that, it's gone. And you literally go from making 10, $20 million a year to zero, And so I do think that athletes specifically have a different mentality when it comes to kind of risk in their investing life because of that. Now, what I do find very fascinating is there's a whole bunch of athletes. I mean, we could go through Shaq, Magic Johnson, um, you know, LeBron probably would be this way. Michael Jordan's definitely this way, uh, who when they played, they had some investments, right? They had some knack or or, uh, interest in business. But once they retired, that's really where it took off for them. Some of it's time. Like I have more time to devote to this stuff. Some of it is now I really have an understanding of my financial picture, right? Uh, but a lot of it I do think is you can be a better planner when you know that, okay, I can't count on $20 million a year coming from a, a team and then it might go away. If you look at like, let be like a Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan probably really understands his income and what he can expect on an annual basis, but it's nothing to do with playing right? It's investments, it's ownership of businesses. It's something that's more akin to like a professional business owner or investor than it is to an athlete. It just so happens to be he built a bunch of notoriety and was able to use that distribution to build companies early on because he played basketball. But now Michael Jordan is not a basketball player. Michael Jordan is an investor and a business owner. And I think that is um, kind of a, a very uh, freeing thing for a lot of athletes because once they retire and they're not playing anymore, now you transition from I'm an athlete who invests or I'm an athlete who owns a business to no, I'm just an investor and a business owner, just like everybody else. I happen to have an advantage because people know me because of my athletic pursuit.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the, the interesting things, and I'm curious your opinion on it is like, we all saw, uh, you know, the 30 for 30 broke CNBC had some statistics that, you know, all these athletes were going broke once they retired X number of years afterwards. And I think that was really ingrained in people's minds. And those are 10, 12, 15 years old at this point, those, those productions and those uh, those articles. But I think ultimately what people see when they say, hey, athletes are going all in, they're taking their pay in Bitcoin, they're doing this, et cetera. I think a lot of people think, oh, athletes aren't great investors. Why would we listen to them? But when you actually zoom out and you look at the landscape of crypto in general, a lot of this started on the fringes of the internet, right? And it's been 10, 12 years since some of this technology came around initially. And so while athletes are coming in in masses now do you see this more as these companies are now marketing to the masses and they're going outside of their traditional financial marketing products uh someone who may be easy to invest in this stuff understand it uh really well etc and now they're going to kind of cultural side of things or do you see it as just uh kind of athletes taking a riskier position than they normally would
1: I think there's a couple of ways to look at this, right? So first is just why do a lot of athletes go broke, right? Or or did they, you know, probably had a higher proportion before than they do now? It's just you're taking people who have never had money before, right? And you're giving them a ton of money. Guess what? There's a bunch of studies that show lottery winners all go broke as well. You're taking people who didn't have a lot of money and you gave them a lot of money and they go broke, right? And so it, it, it's um, the belief that your financial uh, discipline, your financial habits, whether you have a dollar or a hundred million dollars, if you're not good at managing a dollar, you're not going to be good at managing a hundred million. If you're good at managing a dollar, you got a shot at a hundred million, but you can still screw it up. Right. And so I think that's one thing is just like, we shouldn't expect there to be a high success rate. If people didn't have success, even before they had the money. The second thing is, uh, there's a lot of folks who I think, they used to rely on, uh, kind of those around them. So their brother, their, uh, high school friend, their college buddy, uh, their mom's, you know, uh, friend's son ended up being their manager, et cetera. And there was this belief that like you had to use the people who are close to you. And therefore those people ended up not being the best people in managing the money. And also there was all kinds of things around greed or, uh, um, you know, people stealing or making bad decisions, whatever. Now, what I think people are starting to wake up to is they're saying, okay, hold on a second. It's been hammered into my head. A lot of athletes go broke, right? So like, I know to be aware of this now. And I think the leagues and the teams have done a great job of being, making people aware of that. The second thing that I think has happened is there's examples to point to. Now, with social media, people know that Shaq got really rich through business. People know Magic Johnson has a massive business portfolio. They know LeBron. They know Michael Jordan. They know these examples. Uh, And then the third thing is, not only do they know the examples, but there's somebody who is around them who is an expert at doing it, right? And so... Sometimes the team provides uh, some help. Sometimes their agent ends up working with some sort of financial advisor. Sometimes it's literally a JP Morgan or a Wells Fargo or somebody. They've got something. There's all kinds of different ways they get the help, but they're surrounding themselves now with true financial help rather than simply just saying, Oh, my brother does it. Or my, my friend does it. They're looking for those experts. So you put that together and you start to say to yourself, okay, Well, what do they do? One of the most fascinating things to me is there's a lot of athletes, especially in the NFL, it seems like, who what they essentially say is, I don't touch my salary. I live off the marketing dollar and so let's say that i have a 10 million dollar a year uh, kind of package to go play you know for an NFL team and then i make two million dollars a year off the field in endorsements and sponsorships if i can keep the 10 million dollars and just keep putting that away into investments and savings and i live off the two million dollars in sponsorship money then one i mean you can do a lot of crazy stuff with two million dollars a year right so it's not like you're living in a, a motel six like you got a nice house you got a nice car you're, you're able to travel you're able to do all the things that you want to do uh but also you're essentially stacking the rest of this money away for when you're done playing. And I think that that's the type of discipline uh, that now you hear it in in the conversations. You and I have talked to how many different athletes that say, Hey, I don't touch my salary. I just live off my marketing money. And that has almost become like this meme within these locker rooms, which I think is really important because it's essentially allowing people, let's use that example, $10 million in annual pay, $2 million in sponsorships. You're living off less than 20% of what you get paid. If you just are a random person that works at a corporation, let's say you get paid a hundred K a year, if you could live off 20 K or less, that would be great financial habits. Right. And so what they're really doing is they're just trying to figure out how do they structure their life in a way where they still are only spending a small percentage of what they make, but they can live the life that, you know, they want to live and that people almost would expect for somebody that makes millions of dollars a
0: year. Yeah. And I would say that the other thing that sticks out a lot between the guys that we know is, there's not as much, uh, I would say like, hey, friends are gonna manage my money, right? It's, Correct. it's much more structured, not only because that's the right thing to do, and, and I'm sure people are telling them these things and the teams and the leagues are telling them this, but I think the social media aspect has a lot to do with it also, right? People wanna be known as good investors. You wanna be known as the, the Kevin Durant of the world where uh, they're getting talked about in the investment space where they're being brought deal flow. So I think that's a huge part of it. And then the other side of it too is like, a lot of these athletes have an immense opportunity from an age perspective and the time that they have on the horizon, right? So one of the examples, I always use is Patrick Mahomes and to my knowledge he hasn't necessarily done anything in the Bitcoin or digital asset space but he's 25 years young or years old I believe now or younger uh, he's going to make 500 million dollars on his current contract which is an absurd amount of money but he's super young right so it gives him a massive advantage from a cash flow perspective early on in his career and everyone knows just the time value of money and the compounding and everything if you have money for 30 years 40 years 50 years and you're able to invest it early on in your career it's going to expand quickly and rapidly and aggressively if you're able to do it right and he's made a bunch of really good investments in Whoop Hyper Ice uh, he owns equity stakes in ml in an MLB team the Kansas City Royals and MLS team, et cetera. Uh, But I think that what we're seeing now is these athletes take much greater advantage of that.
1: I do think that there's um, a mentality shift between taking cash versus the equity. They've seen this story too many times where somebody took cash and the equity would have been worth more. Um, Also, there's been the celebritization, if you will, um, of... Angel investing and tech investing and all that. So, so there's obviously uh, some stuff going on there. And then the other thing that I would say is, uh, you know, in Mahomes' case, for example, I don't know exactly what the rules are, but I got to imagine part of uh, the pitch to him as to why he should stay with the Kansas City Royals, sign a contract, etc., is like, hey, by the way, we can help. We can't give you equity ownership in the uh, uh, in the uh, Chiefs, right? I'm, I'm sorry, in the Kansas City Chiefs, but we can help you buy equity in these other entities around town that happen to be here in, uh, in our hometown. And so are they directly pitching that as that part of the contract? I'm not sure how that all works, but it doesn't surprise me that there's a, an understanding among athletes of owning equity is important. And, you know, it begs the question, like how many athletes once they're done playing, are going to try to buy a team? Um, I don't think I'm aware of a single NFL owner who was a player who now
0: owns a team. Maybe, maybe there was, no, I think the only you know, like major majority owner I can really think of, uh, across major professional sports, Michael Jordan, for sure. Uh, maybe there's one or two in hockey, but outside of like the major sports, there's not many.
1: Yeah, like I don't think that there's any major league baseball owner or maybe Derek Jeter, I guess, is like a minority owner, right? And and so there's some of that that goes on. uh, But really what ends up happening is uh, more similar to what A-Rod and Mark Lord just did buying the Minnesota Timberwolves, right? You get an athlete from a different sport goes and buys a a, a different team. Um, Some of that is just because uh, it's really hard to buy professional sports teams. Uh, Some of that is because they literally don't have enough money, right? And then some of that is uh, there's also like social constructs, right? If, if you were the player, the owners, do they look at you on equal footing? Like, again, I don't know how it works. Um, And I think that's part of the argument that athletes have is like, we should be on equal footing. Right. Um, But, but I think that's the type of stuff that's going through their head. And then outside of it, like, look, most of these guys uh, are going to make more money investing than they are on the field. Right. Like people think okay, you make $10 million a year. That's a lot of money. You're a good investor. Like you can make way more than $10 million a year. Right. And if you have $10 million of cash flow. And after you pay your taxes, everything, let's say you got 5 million bucks, expenses, uh, taxes, everything. You have $5 million. If you can three or four X that 5 million bucks and you do that consistently and you continue to compound, you'll make way more money off the field than you will on the field, right? I mean, Michael is well, the best example. He's a billionaire, not because he played basketball. He's a billionaire because he's got the Jordan brand, which was dependent on basketball, but he made the money
0: as a businessman and an investor more so than he did playing basketball. And in today's environment, I think it's important to also note like, they're seeing deals that can 3, 4X pretty quickly and and pretty certainty, right? Like at a, at a high rate uh, of success because they're seeing late stage deals that they know are already working uh, and are raising capital later on. They're inv- they're co-investing with large venture capital firms, et cetera. So I think from that standpoint, if you're looking for deals uh, in that 2, 3, 4X range, it's not nearly as hard as maybe an average individual that's earning an everyday paycheck can go find in the stock market, right? So you, you have that access that helps a lot. And one of the things we always talk about uh, is just like they're at a prime point in their career right? Where they have the ability to call up a venture capitalist if they want the best investors on wall street and just say, Hey, look, I want to learn. And I think that advantage uh, has, has certainly helped a lot of guys. Saquon talks about that all the time of like, Hey, just go talk to these guys. Uh, and they'll give you kind of that insight and, and, and give you deal flow and all this kind of stuff later on.
1: My number one piece of advice to every athlete, and uh, we've done it with celebrities, musicians, athletes, et cetera, is right now you got the hot hand everyone wants to hang out with you, right? And, and use, um, you know, let's use uh, Saquon as an example, just because uh, he plays for the New York Giants, a lot of asset managers in New York. Uh, if Saquon called up any hedge fund manager for the most part in New York City and said, hey, I'd like to come see you or any venture capitalist, I'd like to come learn from you. I'd like to come spend a day with you in your office. Almost every single one of them is going to say yes. Now, that doesn't mean that he's looking for a job. That doesn't mean that he's looking to invest with them. He's looking to learn. And what do they want to do? They want to be like, oh, I met Saquon Barkley. I did all this stuff. Now, the second step to that strategy is once you, be, you begin to learn, then you are a professional athlete. You are somebody that they enjoy. And so a lot of venture capitalists find uh, it, it intellectually stimulating, uh, they're egotistical, they're arrogant, uh, or they just genuinely think you can help, but they want to bring those people into deals because it makes them look good, right? To the founder, or they think that they're smart or it makes them look good to the athlete. And so what do they do? They end up sending deals. They're going to do now every athlete's got to understand like, Hey, that's great. If somebody's going to send you deals, you better make sure they're a good investor. It's very different. If benchmark is sending you the deal versus a no name venture capitalist. Right. And so I think that ultimately athletes are starting to realize if I can co-invest alongside benchmark or Sequoia or Andreessen or, or name your uh, kind of tier one fund. And I can do that because of who I am and I can start to build a track record. Then all of a sudden I'll start to get some direct deal flow, but I can always rely on these big firms that have billions of dollars to deploy and have a great track record. They're the ones who are going to help me do this and do it well. And I'll learn, but also make money. And I think that's ultimately what we want to do is, you know, there's a lot of people who put value on being a contrarian, being the one to invest when no one else would. Like, that's great. A lot of reasons why the tier ones, when they invest, everyone wants to be in the deal because they do good deals, right? Yeah, and, and so there, there's a balance between yeah, being the is one thing, but also, uh, you know, when uh, when when somebody does a deal and they're a tier one investor. There's no shortage of people who want to be in that deal simply because you know they're good investors, you know that they've got a great track record, and of course it's, uh, it's got a higher probability of succeeding because you've got a tier one investor that's got capital, that's got a track record, etc.
0: Yeah, there are, there are certainly plenty of people within sports and entertainment celebrity-wise that can point to a, lar- a large percentage of their net worth or profits coming uh, from just having really good relationships, right, and building those relationships over a long period of time with good investors and following alongside some of those trends, right? So I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but let's talk about crypto sponsorships, right? I think people... Talk a lot about crypto in sports, and to be honest, it was it was irrelevant four, five, six years ago. There was no money coming in from that sponsorship side, and sponsorships, as we know, is one of the large revenue drivers of the majority of these sports leagues, whether it's the NFL, the NBA, uh, the NHL, here domestically, or whether it's international leagues like Formula One, the Premier League, or others. Sponsorships are a main driver, a main revenue category of all of these leagues. So I think when people see crypto companies like FTX and crypto.com come in, Coinbase, uh, BlockFi, Gemini, all these companies and spend a billion, two billion dollars or at least commit over the last year to year and a half, they're doing everything, right? Seven hundred million dollars on Staples Center, a hundred million dollars with the UFC. People are buying stakes in esports teams, all of it. I think people get uh, excited for sure, uh, but they also get nervous so as we've seen crypto, the asset class has gone from a three, four hundred billion dollar industry to a two point five trillion dollar industry today. So it's massive. I believe that it's kind of uh, intellectually lazy at some point to just say it's going to go to zero. Right. And, and you look at it in aggregate, it's the third largest. If it was a public company, it'd be the third largest in the world. So thinking about it in that context, like how big can this be for sports from a sponsorship side?
1: Well, I think just generally what we're seeing is, uh, whenever you have a fast growing industry, uh, fast growing being measured by the amount of capital that's being invested by the valuations of the companies, uh, the number of, uh, open roles, the number of filled roles and kind of total employees, the number of economic output, uh, or value captured, uh, the number of companies going public, uh, the revenues, like there's so many different ways to measure where's fast growing industry. The Bitcoin and cryptocurrency industry is by far probably the fastest growing of all technology industries in the entire world. Um, And some of that's just because it was really small and now it's growing into something that's material. And so you just have kind of a base effect to it. Uh, But it's still, you know, how many billionaires have been minted in the industry? a lot. And so when you start to look at um, kind of what's happening, that just means that the industry is flush with cash. The investors are flush with cash. The founders are flush with cash. The employees are flush with cash. The users are flush with cash, right? All of that. And so when that happens, everyone's willing to pay more. They're willing to pay more to acquire users. They're willing to pay more for sponsorships. They're willing to pay their employees more. They're willing to pay more for services. Like everything when you have more money ends up being uh, kind of more obtainable. And so when you start to see some of these sponsorship deals, right, I go all the way from, let's do non-sports to sports. Right. So take like BlockFi, for example, where BlockFi ran this national campaign for their new credit card. They had billboards and uh, signage and airports and train stations, subways, like they literally took over the country as best they could by pouring money into this national campaign it worked. One of the fastest growing credit card launches in history. Now, if you go and you look at something like FTX, FTX two, three years ago was relatively unknown. Nobody even knew who Sam Bankman Fried was. Nobody knew about FTX. But what they did was they built a great product. They got liquidity there, right? They had Alameda. Um, that was obviously a huge component of it. And then they went and they did a bunch of sponsorship deals, and they started to come out and do all these massive things. Everything from the stadium in Miami all the way up to various esports teams and, and uh, paying athletes and doing all this stuff. So they were able to make a name for themselves, very very fast growing company. Now, when you look at that, what you have to start to think about is like, well, how much money do they really have from a sponsorship standpoint? And the key market structure difference is. Pre 2019 2020, all of the marketing was internal to the industry. Everyone was saying, "Okay, Joe has already become interested in Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. Now I want you to come and trade at my venue. I want you to come and use my product. I want you to come and use my custody service, etc." But you're already convinced about Bitcoin and crypto, so let me just c- recruit you over to me. So I'm going to go to Bitcoin and Crypto Twitter. I'm going to go to Reddit. I'm going to go to uh, people who are searching things on uh, uh, SEO. Um, Google ads, conferences, like all that type of stuff. But eventually people got exhausted, right? Of those avenues, those channels. Everyone knows what, Coinbase is if you're in the industry. So if you're a Coinbase, what do you have to do? You have to go outside of the industry. You have to go try to recruit new users. So where do you go find that? Well, I think Sam bankman Fried's the one who basically said they looked at some studies and there was a very high propensity of people who watch sports to also invest in cryptocurrencies. And so he said, okay, well, let's go try to get in front of those people. Let's go make sure everyone knows who FTX is. Coinbase, obviously with the NBA sponsorship, et cetera, is trying to do very similar things. And obviously there's a whole plethora of crypto.com and a bunch of others that are doing this. But I think really what we're watching is a strategy shift from internal marketing to now external marketing. That external marketing looks a lot similar to what people would see happen in other industries. It just took a while for us to get here. And now all of a sudden we're going to do external marketing and people got really big balance sheets Game on, right? They just got enough money to do it. So how many other industries could you see people stepping in? Now it happens, you know, SoFi obviously has SoFi Stadium. Uh, So people, it's not like other technology companies don't go and sponsor these uh, large arenas. It's just that the size and breadth of them and, and the amount they're paying, it's just, it's incredible, I think, to kind of watch this play out.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, specifically talking about FTX, because they're one of the largest players in the space and the largest from a sponsorship standpoint. They're obviously a big exchange and they do a lot of volume transactional wise, uh, but they're not the biggest, right? And I think one of the things that's most interesting about them is uh, Sam Bankman Fried has been very open and, and he's laid out some great, uh, quotes are actually some some data to support a lot of this stuff, right? And he was asked a few months ago uh, by a reporter, I forget exactly who it was, but they said, hey, do you uh, are you worried about not being able to pay for some of this stuff, right? We've seen in the dot-com boom of the early years, like some of these stadiums or some of these baseball fields were named after companies that ended up going bankrupt or went to zero. Are you worried about your, your ability to pay these partnerships in year five, in year six, in year seven for these longer term deals? And he made a, a comment that essentially was like, we have enough money to do this now if we wanted to. Right? And I think that speaks to uh, not only the amount of capital they have, but their willingness to be super aggressive. And you look at a company like that, they're going to do a billion dollars in revenue this year, they claim, which was up from $85 million last year. So massive, massive, massive growth. But a lot of these sponsorships too allowed them to do super unique things. Right. So we're here in Miami. We went to the season opener of the Miami Heat at the new uh, FTX Arena. And it was fascinating because you think about it it was named American Airlines Arena before. And maybe they have some cool giveaways or flights and things like that they can do. But when you look at it compared to FTX, a digital company that has the ability for you to go download their app and give away real crypto and NFTs and stuff like that. It was fascinating. And the two things that they did specifically were every fan that entered the stadium or the arena uh, was given a T-shirt, right? Like any other company would do. But there was a barcode or QR code on there that when you scanned it, you were given an NFT. You have to go on their platform create an account, download the NFT. So there you go, right? They're they're reducing their customer acquisition costs through that. Next thing you know, they're giving the entire section $500 worth of crypto or Bitcoin or whatever it was. So do you think that these are going to be meaningfully more creative plays to uh, reduce customer acquisition costs than we've historically seen in the past? I think that you have to
1: do it, right? Because the more competition that happens, the traditional channels get commoditized. So you have to go places where no one else can go. Where do you have the advantage? It's just classic marketing, right? How do you arbitrage attention? How do you arbitrage conversion? And really what I think we're seeing happen is like nobody else can advertise inside the FTX arena. Okay, well, what tens of thousands of people go in there every single night? That there's a basketball game. How do we go and get those people to become users? Okay, that's one strategy. Second strategy is how do we do things that make people talk about it, right? So if you look at, again, the BlockFi uh, uh, kind of ad campaign, literally, how many people did they hit inside of an airport? A lot of people. And guess what it says? Earn Bitcoin earn Bitcoin rewards, right? Okay, that grabs my attention. If you look at something like crypto.com, they did the Matt Damon um, commercial, right? And they would go ahead and they create this whole thing uh, that kind of sends a bunch of um, uh, waves. You see Strike doing things around uh, these athletes getting paid. You see Cash App and OBJ doing uh, the, the pay me in Bitcoin stuff. So like, it's just, you're constantly always looking for how do you arbitrage the attention and how do you get your cost of acquisition down, but also get a repeatable scalable channel. It's great if you can get 5,000 people one time, but if it costs you a bunch of money to do it and you can't repeat it over and over, a lot of these companies won't do it. But if you say to me, hey, I I have a pathway to get 100,000 new users and this 100,000 new users are at a cost-effective rate, and oh, by the way, this scales really nicely, now you're onto something and they're pretty interested.
0: Well, I think people too need, like how much are some of these companies paying for customer acquisition costs, right? Because in my understanding, it can be quite a lot.
1: It could be, uh I'm not going to say any of the companies, but I know companies that pay as little as 50 bucks. I know companies that pay upwards uh, of 500. I know one company that at one point was paying a thousand. They were underwater on it, uh, but they did it (laughs) intentionally. (laughs) um, And then they brought it back down to around 500 bucks. So yeah, it's like 50 to $500 depending on the company and what their service is. The exchanges
0: obviously pay more than some of the other services. So it's like sports betting. Very similar. Pretty close. Yeah. All right. uh, Last question. Dow's. Do you think we'll ever see... So, to be clear, there was one that was trying to buy the Declaration of Independence, right, or one of the copies. Uh, They ended up not being successful in doing it, but they raised a bunch of money. It came together really quickly, and I think people looked at it as an example of what could be possible in the future. If
1: you tell Ken Griffin how much money you have, you're probably going to lose.
0: Yeah, I mean, the first rule of a negotiation is not to tell the person on the other side of the table how much you have. (laughs) But that aside, uh, I think people looked at it and said, hey, this could be a really interesting model. And there's been a few people pop up recently uh, that are trying to start similar models for sports teams. U.S. sports teams, and I think... uh, uh, someone might want to tell them that it's not allowed to, it, it's not able to happen here in the United States for the NFL, MLB, NBA, uh, et cetera. They just have rules in place that will not allow this. But do you think, uh, whether it's like a smaller mid tier tier European soccer team or another league or something like that, do you think that kind of community ownership or governance, uh, is a model through whether it's a DAO structure or something else that ultimately will happen in professional sports?
1: Somebody will definitely do it. Uh, I don't imagine having it in a professional sports. What would be interesting is uh, they try doing like F1, which I don't think has the same rules right? So like, could you go do it in a sport where uh, it's still pretty mainstream, but it doesn't have nearly the same um, uh, kind of limitations? Yeah. Uh, but inside the four major sports, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon.
0: Yeah. And, and just lastly on it, the one thing I would say too, is like social tokens give you some kind of advantage when it comes to uh, governance or ownership or participation or voting rights. Uh, but ultimately, I think most people have been disappointed, I would say, in the their, their ability to actually control things, right? In, in 1999, all the ideas
1: were right. Those yeah. iterations that were wrong, right? So, f- music streaming, food delivery, I mean, you just go down the line, right? They were all the right ideas, but a decade later came the winners Chewy. DoorDash, right? Spotify, et cetera. And so I think you just got to remember that the first iteration of this, the ideas are right. It's usually not the right uh, kind of execution. Some of that's because the consumers aren't ready for it yet. And the technologists are ahead. Some of it's just because there's bad execution. And so I think that that's probably what we're seeing now is people have these ideas. They're probably the right ideas over a long period of time. just the current iterations are going to be really tough to, to scale.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. There's a lot to happen, obviously, in the future. Uh, I feel like we could talk about this for much longer, but we'll leave it there today. We'll have to do it again. Thanks for doing this. Was I a good guest? You were, uh, I'd say, slightly above average. Eh,
1: I'll take above average. Thanks so much.